your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. I love biographies. I'm obsessed with biographies. I'm interested in lives. I love going to Wikipedia and learning about the life of a particular person. I love reading biographies, primarily great missionaries and preachers of the past. I've been studying the missionary to Mongolia, known as the Apostle to Mongolia, named James Gilmore. He was an amazing life. He left Scotland to go to Mongolia among a group of Mongolians that are similar to the Chinese. He lived a life of hardship and loneliness, sometimes even contemplating suicide. He marries a woman after he saw another missionary couple in China. He saw that the woman had a picture of her sister. And he said, hey, is she married? And she said, no. And he said, I think I'll write her and ask her to marry me. So he writes her While she's in England, and she says yes, and then he sends a letter to his parents saying, just so you know, I asked this woman to marry me, and she said yes, and she's going to come and visit you. So just so you know, when you see this stranger come to the house, you'll know that this is the woman that I'm going to marry, and she's a really golly girl. Well... Somehow the letter that was sent to his parents got delayed. So here comes the girl to the parents' house and says, Here I am, I think your son is great. And they said, Who are you? (laughs) I mean, that's the life he lived. Just sentence after sentence, page after page of this amazing life. His wife dies after 13 years of marriage. One of his young children dies. He has to send his two boys back to England and... It is a tremendous story. And for these many biographies that I'm giving to the boys and to our church, I try to pull out one main character trait from each one of them. Because I want to learn from these men. I see so many weaknesses in myself. One of them that I'm considering for Gilmore is that he was willing to do anything it took as long it was, as it was allowable by Scripture in order to give the people the gospel. Uh, he really gave the people first what they wanted. And then he gave them what they needed. So he didn't just go from place to place and hand out tracts. Although he did do that. And he was a fervent evangelist and handed out many tracts. But he discovered that. They were not interested in his message, but they were interested in medicine. The problem is he had no training in medicine. But that didn't stop him from being a quasi-doctor. He learned from another doctor kind of on the run. And he said, originally I said that a doctor with half training is a very dangerous person. It's probably even worse with someone with no training. But then after a time I realized, hey, if you're two weeks from... Any kind of medical training, something is better than nothing. So he somehow trained himself to be not only a doctor, but a dentist. 
And Jim Gilmore would have hundreds of people that would come to his tent. He'd have a tent with tracks and hundreds of people would come to be, have received medical help. And he would pull people's teeth. He was such an amazing man. He even pulled his own teeth when they were rotting out. And I learned so many things from the great missionary James Gilmore. When we come to 2 Corinthians 8, we find another biography. You typically do not think of a biography in 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 8. In fact, most people think of 2 Corinthians as one of Paul's most autobiographical letters. Where Paul does the rare thing and just opens up about himself and even defends his own apostleship. An autobiography is a story about your own life. And a biography is a story about another person's life. We come to 2 Corinthians 8 and we find a biography. And that catches my attention because I love biographies. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians had all kinds of problems. From 1 Corinthians we learned they had lots of sexual immorality problems. And they apparently had some problems in giving as well. So we come to 2 Corinthians 8 and he says, I want to find a way to motivate the Corinthians to give. Primarily to give financially. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to tell them a story, a biography, if you will, about another group of people, Christians, and this will be a motivation to them to give. Let me, let me give you a story about someone who makes half as much as you, but gives us twice as much. So let's read the passage. We're going to focus primarily on verse 9. I'll just read the passage and then I'll come back later in our talk to explain it. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now remember, Macedonia wasn't a town. It was a place like Sanganani that is composed of towns within it, like Philippi. Let me tell you about some other Christians that should motivate you. Have you ever gone to conferences before and you heard really good preaching, but you left with 10 ideas or motivated to do all kinds of things? And it was because, not the preaching, it was, you know what? I was sitting down at lunch with this amazing guy and he just mentioned a couple things in passing. I thought, man, I've got to do that. I think about the camp that we were at, right? I'm guessing... Some of the things you learned, Bodhi Reggie, were just sitting around with Christian men in the evenings around the fire and saying, you know what, their life influenced me. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, let me tell you about this group of people, the Macedonian Christians. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, remember that word, poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief 
of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And here's our text, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. A rich text on riches and a rich text exploited by prosperity preachers today. Well, this evening we have reached our seventh principle of interpretation. And it is usage. Here's the big idea of usage. The same word can have different meanings in Scripture. So be careful. Just because a word means A in one particular place, doesn't mean it will mean A in another place. It could mean B. And so this is, in our journey through these particular principles of interpretation, we have reached number seven. And let's review them briefly. Briefly, I gave you a little chart there. There are nine rules for interpreting scripture, and the goal is to use all nine skillfully, and sometimes, like tools, you might even have two tools in your hand at the same time. My boys, when they have a tool, they can use about one tool at a time right now. And that is, they'll use a spanner, and they'll, they'll turn that nut. But sometimes, have you ever seen a bolt and a nut where you turn it, but it's spinning on the other side? So you have to use another tool and grab it from the back with your left hand and then use your other spanner and tighten it with the right. That takes some skill. Well, try doing that with nine different tools. A skilled interpreter and a skilled preacher is able to simultaneously, as he is studying, use all nine of these rules of interpretation at the same time, which is why... Older preachers not only make fewer mistakes in interpretation, but they're able to prepare sermons more quickly. Why? Because they become so skilled at it. It's like a mechanic who goes underneath the, the, the bonnet and he says, oh, I can fix this in 25 minutes because I've done it so often, but it would take someone else maybe two and a half days. The more skill you have in these particular principles, the better your sermons will be. Try fixing your car with just one spanner. You can maybe muddle through it, but if you have nine different sizes of spanners and wrenches working together, then you're able to fix the car appropriately. S. What does S stand for? Lloyd? Salvation. Salvation. 
The first thing we need to understand the Holy Scripture is conversion. We need new eyes. We're blind. We need new hearts. We need eternal life. We need spectacles that come from the Holy Spirit so that we can see. Number two, see. What does that stand for? Cornet. It also stands for Cornet. But... <laughs> Context, right? And that is, that is what surrounds those verses. The verse before it, the verse after it, the chapter before it, the chapter after it, the context of the book. And we even talked about the context of the culture that it was written to. R. Cross-references, right? Or linking the passage. We learned that not only with the data-collecting stage earlier on in our, our soldier device here with linking the passage, but also interpreting the passage as well, sometimes called analogy of faith. I stands for making a distinction or identifying prescriptive and descriptive texts. What were the code words we used for descriptive and prescriptive texts? Caleb? Right. Poets and kings. And then we come next to P. What does P stand for? Figures of speech or pictures. Right. And we have to have our eyes out for when the Bible is using metaphors or similes. Other kinds of devices. Jesus loved to use hyperbole. Let's not be thrown off track and take something literally when it should be a picture or vice versa. And then T, we learned last week, was a distinction between the Old and the New Testament, the Testaments, or progressive revelation. Well, today, we've reached usage, and we're going to focus on 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and particularly those words poor and rich. But before that, let's... Tell a story. And Caleb, I put you in this story today. And so we're going to tell a story about someone who comes to Caleb and says there's mistakes in the Bible and how usage can help us understand it. Temba one day comes to Caleb and tells him that there are mistakes in the Bible. And you'll hear things like that one day, especially if you go to university. Or if you start interacting with your friends at school on spiritual things. I, um, I have a friend in the village. He's a strong ANC promoter. And he often comes to my house and tries to talk about politics. And... Uh, he, is, he is one of the most um, and one of the only outspoken African atheists that I have met. Uh, as Kunihap has said, uh, Africans are incurably re- religious. It doesn't mean that most Africans are genuine Christians, but it is rare to meet an African uh, who says, I don't believe in the existence of Shikwembu. God. Well, this guy is uh, uh, adamantly opposed to Christianity and the idea of, of a God. And he often brings out these kind of arguments. Look at all the mistakes in the Bible. This isn't just a Western idea of 
professors in, in England saying these kind of things. Someone comes to you and says, there's mistakes in the Bible. And Temba gives Caleb an example. And I could give hundreds. Let's, let's just use this one. Temba takes him to 1 Kings 15, 1 through 2. He says, you know, I was reading this and he sa- it says, Abijam's mother is Maka, daughter of Abishalom. But 2 Chronicles 13 says his mother is Micaiah, daughter of Gibeah. And then Temba smiles and says, See the mistake? First of all, it says his mother is different names. And then besides that, who exactly is she a daughter of? Is it Abishalom or is it Gibeah? And then Caleb smiles. (laughs) He's not fearful at all of Temba's question. Because his father has taught him the Bible That it is inerrant. Psalm 12 verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. And then he remembered the particular lecture that Pastor Paul taught him. And he said, oh, I remember Buddy Paul. He taught us this particular lecture about the rules of interpretation. And specifically about usage. So Temba, I'm not intimidated at all. I might not have even read this passage But already I've got those nine rules rolling around in my head. And quickly I say, I know I'm a Christian. Lord Jesus, help me. Help me understand this passage. And then the first thing I say is, all right, I'm not just going to jump in there. Let's just back up a little bit, a little chapter. Let me just get my bearings a little bit to know what this is talking about. And so you read before, you read after, and probably Temba is going to get restless. And he's going to be pounding his foot. He's going to say, come on, come on, answer. And you're going to say, hey, it doesn't work that way. And then you start thinking about other passages and you're already putting all the rules of interpretation into play. And then Caleb answers Temba. And he says to your first question, Temba, this is easy. Abijam's mother's name was Maka. Although sometimes it's spelled Micaiah. They're different spellings, just like Sean, Sean, and Sean. Some people spell names differently, and especially, how many of you have your own name spelled differently on your own passport? That should communicate. And then second, Caleb says, being a missionary in Africa makes this next question even easier to answer. Almost weekly, someone from our church has a mother or a brother or a sister or a father die. And Caleb's in the beginning. I said oh man. Your father died. I'm so sorry. And then two weeks later. The same person says my father died. And you said. I thought, I thought your father just died two weeks ago. Oh that's uh, Papa Tongo. <laughs> I've been there before. I'm thinking man. How many uncles do you have? How many fathers do you have? Okay. So I'm learning that there's a little bit of flexibility here in one person might define brother in this way and another person, it's much wider. Hey, we're all brothers here, okay? Same thing. We saw his brother could refer to one of his uncle's eight children that he's never even met before. Although other people might call him a cousin. And then Caleb continues. 
He says Hebrew words, terms like daughter and mother in chapter 15 do not necessarily refer to first generation descendants and can mean granddaughter or grandmother respectively. And in this way, Caleb says, hey, if we're using those categories, I'm the son of Seth or I'm also the son of Eric. That's Seth's father's name, which took me a little bit today to <laughs> retrieve that. I said, Melinda, what is Seth's father's name? Eric. So we could say, we could say he is the son of Eric in a sense, in one particular definition. There's no contradiction. And therefore... Mom was Maka, and she was the female offspring, we could put it that way, of Abishalom and Gibeah. Now, that's just, that's just a small, almost a silly example from the Old Testament. That you would say, really, it doesn't have any great theological significance to which we'd say, you're right, other than to show there's no mistakes in the Bible. And the Bible's inerrant, and there's answers for it. And then, after this speech, Temba shakes his head, and he says, Caleb... I want to go to your father's church and I want to learn more about these things. Here's the point. Here's the point. Words, the same words, can have different meanings in Scripture. And we as students of the Bible, if we really believe that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, then shouldn't we of all people be very careful not to brush aside a particular word, but to dig in deeply and say, what exactly does that mean? Words are like tools. And they have different uses. Imagine having a hammer, a claw hammer. You know a hammer that has the claw on the back side? And that claw hammer can be used to drive nails into a board or it can be used to remove nails from a board. It depends on the context. If someone came to you and said, what is the purpose of that hammer? You would say it depends. If you said simply it's to drive a nail, well, it can also remove a nail. And in the same way, what is the purpose of this particular word? And the answer is it depends on the context. A particular word or words may be used differently throughout Scripture. Let me give a couple modern day examples. William Carey was the father of Felix. William Carey, the great missionary. And he had sons and one of them was Felix. But he's also the father of modern missions. There's no contradiction no one could come to us and say, you, you made a mistake, you lied to us. We'd say, no, I used the word father, the same word father, in different ways. How about the word date? It can refer to a day of the year. It can refer to a romantic appointment. Or it can refer to a dark brown fruit. Same word, different usage. Same tool. Different usage. Let me give some biblical examples. How about the word saved? Sometimes the word can have a 
physical meaning. Matthew 14, 30. Lord, save me. That would be a physical deliverance. Or in Acts 2, 21, it can have a spiritual deliverance. That's why the word sozo, I would just say in general, the word sozo for save means deliverance. And then you have to decide from the particular context what kind of deliverance it is. Is it a physical deliverance? Is it emotional deliverance? Is it a spiritual deliverance? And so we go to Acts 2, 21. Cornet, could you read that verse? That's C1B. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, now, is that speaking about physical deliverance? Well, we would say from the context that's talking about what? Eternity. Eternity, spiritual deliverance. How about the word flesh? It means the physical body in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. A thorn was given me in the flesh. But then, the same word, sarx, the same Greek word, it means sinful desires in Romans 8, 6 through 7. To set the mind on the flesh is death. That's not saying on the physical body. The flesh is hostile to God. That's talking about the sinful desires. So can you see that as an interpreter and as a preacher, when you come the word sarx, You've got to be careful. Remember how we're weaving these in between each other? You've got to be careful that when you go to usage and you come up here to references, that you do use cross-references in the interpretation process. Just make sure that you don't cross-reference to the wrong place. Just make sure that you don't take Acts 2.21 and then for the cross-reference... You go to Matthew 14.30 and say, hey, when we believe in Jesus, he's going to save us physically from all our physical maladies. That's why it's very important to use all seven of these, all nine of these simultaneously. How about the word head? It can mean the part of the body containing the brain. It can mean the top of something. It can mean the leader. It can mean the beginning of something. Or how about the word covet? Is coveting good or bad? Normally we think of it as bad. Ephesians 5.3 speaks out against covetousness. Or one of the commandments. The 10th commandment is do not covet. But now we come to 1 Corinthians 12.31 and it says covet. It's a command. It's an imperative Covet earnestly the best gifts. And then it's going to open up into 1 Corinthians 13 and a chapter about love. Well, same word, although they're not the same Greek word, but same English word with different meanings and different usages. As a hermeneutical rule then, discovering the usage of a word is very important. So let me give you three guidelines that will help you with usage. Number one. And this is, again, one of our themes that we're going to talk about. We can't isolate just one of these. Because even when we talk about this one, usage, what's one of the first things we're going to do? Use it in tandem with context. Context is the greatest ally in discovering word usage. 
I mean, what does the word left mean? The word left means left. <laughs> what does the word left mean? Okay. But that means when you put something behind you, like it stays where you were. Okay, so that would be maybe a verb then. You left it behind, is that what you mean? Okay. It can also mean the opposite of right. But even there that's not clear because when it's the opposite of right, do you mean a direction? Or do you mean a philosophy? Well, it's all going to matter in the context. Finding the meaning of the word left is simply based on its usage in the context. It may mean a direction, turn left. It may mean a movement, he left, like Caleb said. Or an amount remaining, there are two boxes left. Think of the uses of the word run. And again, you can't possibly know what the word run means without what? Context. My nose is running. The president is running. Right? Different. The car is running. The Olympian is running. Right? Same word. Different meaning for each one depending on the context. Its usage is different. How about the word world? Context will determine its usage. I brought... Lawson with me here today, that is Steve Lawson, he has a section in his book on foundations of grace, talking about definite atonement, which is Jesus Christ died in a special way only for the elect. Well, if you're going to come to that conclusion you're going to have to come to a conclusion on the word world. He talks about the word world throughout the book of John. Here are the different definitions that he gives of world. Number one, entire universe. Number two, the physical earth. Number three, the world system. Number four, humanity minus believers. Number five, a large group. By the way, this is all just from John itself. Number six, general public. Number seven, Jews and Gentiles. Number eight, the human realm. Number nine, the non-elect. Number ten, the elect only. Then this is what he says in his summary. It is clear that world has many shades of meanings in the Gospel of John. This diversity may be kept in mind when studying this fourth gospel. Great care and skillful precision must be exercised in assigning a proper meaning to the word cosmos or world in each context. The Apostle John himself moves freely from one meaning to another, sometimes even within the same verse. An investigation of these many verses and the multiple meanings of world reveals that one cannot automatically assume that the word world means every living person. Let me just jump off that for a moment. Let's go to the book of John before we continue in our notes. Because in our particular reading program at our church, we're in the book of John right now. So let's just start with John 1 and go through a couple chapters. And just highlight 
some words that we can see would have different usages throughout the scripture. So let's just go to John 1. And let's not even leave the first verse. In fact, let's not even leave the first line. And we can see that this hermeneutical principle will come into play. In the beginning. What does beginning mean? The start of what? Caleb? The, uh, the, the creation of the world. Okay. So, beginning means at the start, just before the world was created? Yes. Okay. In the beginning was the word. This is John speaking. Now, let's keep your finger there because we'll come right back. Let's go to 1 John. And let's not even leave the first line of 1 John. That which was from the what? Beginning. Beginning. Hey, same author. What does beginning mean there? Now read the whole verse. Read the context. 1 John 1, verse 1, same author, what would the word beginning there mean? Does that refer to the beginning of the world as it meant in, first, in John 1, 1? And Sush says no, that's all I got. I got I, in fact, I didn't even get a, a word, I just got an uh-uh. <laughs> Anyone else want to jump in there? Is beginning in 1 John 1 1 the same as beginning in John 1 1? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. So, is that referring to Jesus' pre-incarnate state? Or is this referring to, as Nsushya said, the beginning of his appearance? Or the beginning of his time coming to earth? Something to think about. I think it would be the latter. Let's go back to John 1. Our point now is not to... Unpack all of these passages just to show you how words can have different usages. Let's go to verse 10. He, this is John 1 and verse 10. He was in the what? World. Okay, what would world mean there? Could we say that's referring to the physical world? Like earth, planet earth, can we say that? Okay. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Would we say that word means the same thing? Right? Earth? Okay. So earth, earth. Yet the earth did not know him. What would world mean there? Okay. This is amazing. John, even in the same, even in the same verse, he uses the same word three times, but in two places, 
it has a particular meaning, the same meaning. And then in another place, it doesn't. Yes, Seth? Could we just say that all three of these are creation? The reason I'm asking is, uh, do we have to... Uh, uh, because if the, if the definition changes even in the same verse, how can we use context to determine the definition if the word, if the meaning can change? And how do we stop mm -hmm. some false teacher from saying, yeah. hey, you got your meaning, I got mine. Well, I, it changes every verse. Yeah. Well, we would, yeah, because we would say the, the, the physical earth can't know him. Yeah. And as we read the whole context of the book of John, and as we study what that word know means throughout John, and as we study the whole book and we say, wow, look at all John means when he uses the word know, again, where context comes in, we say world cannot mean the same thing in each one of those. Let's go to John 2. John 2 and verse 19. Destroy this temple in, and in three days I will raise it up. But actually let's go back to verse 15. And make a whip of course, he drove them all out of the, what? Okay, so in verse 15, what is the meaning of temple? The physical structure, okay? In verse 19, what is the meaning of the word temple? The physical structure that they were worshiping in? Is that what it means? What is temple referring to? And how do we know it's referring to Jesus' body? Good job, Nico. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's right. Okay, let's go to chapter 3. John 3 and verse 18. Whoever what? Believes. What does the word believe there mean? Uh, I'm teaching the book of Romans right now and we are taking this very word faith or belief that Paul talks about in Romans and we are defining what saving belief means by three prongs knowledge acceptance and the will or approval <clears throat> three prongs coming together of what faith means. Can you think of anywhere in scripture where the same word believe is used, but it's not saving belief? Can you think of, I, I just have two times in my mind, although there's probably many, where the word belief or believe is used, but it's not saving belief. It's not this kind. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Nathan? When the, when the demons believe. Okay, James 2.19. Okay. So same word, but different usage. I also think about Simon the Magician in Acts 8, where it said he had faith, he believed, but it wasn't saving belief. 
Uh, we'll just give one more example. How about John 4 and verse 34? Now, before we get to verse 34, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy what? Food, right? So let's just say that means fish and bread, okay? Now come to verse 34. Jesus said, my what? Food. Is that, does that mean fish and bread? Okay, so all I'm saying here is just because one word is used in Scripture, we have to be clever and say, I need to know what that word means here in the context. So context is the greatest ally in discovering word usage. Number two, if possible, it is helpful to find the Hebrew and Greek word behind the home language Translation. That is why essentially every great seminary, every good seminary, every decent seminary in church history has made the original languages a staple of their program. Now I understand that many of you have not taken that and we're trying to teach you how to preach without that. But it is important if you could. Learn some about the original languages because it's going to help you in this particular principle of interpretation. Number one, we already looked at that example referring to temple. Number two, it talks more about that. We'll move on. Next, letter C. Note the usage of a word by the same writer. How does the writer use that word in a verse in the book, and then just keep on spanning outward. I have a book, a commentary on Ephesians, and the author, he must do it hundreds of times in the book. He'll come to a verse, and he'll do the same thing. How is that verse used in the book? How is that verse used in this particular author in in Pauline writing? How is this verse used in the New Testament? How is it used, that word used in the whole Bible? So he starts here, and then he just starts broadening out. Listen to what Zuck says. If the immediate context does not make clear the meaning of a word, it is sometimes helpful to ask, how did the writer use this elsewhere in the same book? This does not mean a writer cannot use a word differently in the same books. He can, as we saw above with John, the word cosmos. And of course, there's examples of faith, for example, in Ephesians 2.8. For of grace you have been saved by faith. And then James 2.19, we find the word believe, although they are different in their usage. Okay, as we close, let's use our case study. Let's look at an example, and let's work back to 2 Corinthians 8.9. We already read verses 1 through 9 as we began this particular talk. So let's go back. Again, do you remember what this is about? Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthians to give financially. And he's going to motivate them by pointing to the Macedonians and the way they gave. 
let me give you some marks of their giving. Number one, it was a mark of grace. Verse one, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. That word grace is a theme in 2 Corinthians. That word grace is found 10 times in chapter 8 and half of verse 9 alone. So if you read just chapter 8 and half of chapter 9, it's found 10 times, and I think it's found something like 18 times in the whole book. In other words, you can't explain this kind of amazing giving, giving outside of grace. It's grace before and it's grace after. How do you explain these people who have so little money that they're giving constantly? You can't give this to me. You have so little. You know what the answer is? It's grace. It's a mark of grace. What Jesus, look what Jesus has done for me. Paul begins by saying, how do you explain this kind of giving? You explain it by grace. Number two, what would be another mark of their giving? Joy. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, notice it's not even just affliction. It's a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So they're giving joyfully. Number two, they're giving in in, uh, amidst great poverty. Again, not even poverty, but great poverty. Extreme poverty. Number four, their giving was generous. That is, they didn't give simply what they had left over. It wasn't after I paid all the bills and got all of the benefits that I wanted, I had a little bit of change left in my pocket, and that's what I gave. No, this is a a kind of generosity, giving far and above what they're even commanded to do. Number five, it was voluntary. Verse three. For they gave according to their means as I can testify. And beyond their means, how? Of their own accord. Verse three. Isn't this the opposite of prosperity preachers? Who are constantly trying to force people to give. To manipulate people to give. To somehow wring out more money from them. You must give. If you want this. Somehow weaving, tithing and giving into every one of their sermons. That's not how the Macedonians gave. They gave of their own accord. Number six. It was enthusiastic giving. Begging us earnestly for the, fa- the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Have you ever known someone like this? Now, this is the opposite of prosperity preaching. Prosperity preachers beg the people to give. The Macedonians are begging the preacher to give. Please let us give more. You know what? I think, I think we're good. I think we have enough right now. We're going to take this now. It doesn't say it in the passage, but I think this is referring to giving to the church in Jerusalem. Because if you use this particular principle, cross-references, and you go to Romans 15, you'll find Macedonia listed. Although that detail is not given here. You'll find Jerusalem listed. So here they're having lots of poverty problems in Jerusalem. They're sending the money there. They have the money. They're going to take it there. 
And they said, no, 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 please, please. Listen, we don't even need these pots and pans. And the wife says, what are you talking about? Those are my own pots. Take the pots and pans. Oh, we have pots. Just take them, please. It's going to make us so happy. That's what's happening. They're begging to give. Enthusiastic. Number seven, it was personal. And this, not as we expected, but they gave what? Before they even gave the pots and pans and the car. They gave themselves. You know what a great example of this is in Philippians. Who's the one that gives? They give Epaphroditus. Philippians is in Macedonia. Send Epaphroditus. Hey, we not only send pots and pans and buckies and money, we send people. We send ourselves. In fact, we don't even send ourselves. We send ourselves first. And then finally, number eight, it was genuine. I say this not as a command, verse eight, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. This isn't fake. Look at me. This is is the real deal. And now we come to our passage. And now, Paul is going to give the greatest motivation of all. I mean, you look at this biography. Paul just wrote this beautiful biography of the Macedonians. And at this point, the Corinthians should be saying, all right, Paul, you convinced us. They're so much better than us. We're we're ashamed. Look at our giving. It's pathetic. And look at the word they give it. All right, let's pass the plate. And Paul says, whoa, I haven't even got to the best one yet. Like that was... That was my second best reason. Because the first best reason is the first best reason throughout all of Scripture. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to verse 9. And we look at the voluntary and sacrificial giving of Jesus Christ that has no equal. Notice the word for in verse 9. For. What does that word for tell us? That it's connected to something that came before. Uh, three key terms here. Rich, poor, rich. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that's a key word, for your sakes he became poor, that's a key word, so that by his poverty... Might become rich. Let's unpack this briefly with a couple minutes we have left. I think all three of these should be taken spiritually. Uh, number one, he was rich. This refers to his pre existent state in heaven and in eternity. A big help here is going to go to, we're not going to go there now, but Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, talking about his. State of humility. Though he was rich. That is. Though he was in heaven. Though he had all of the joy of eternity. Though he was exalted. What is he going to do? Well we're going to find out. He became poor. Now of course we know that Jesus Christ is rich physically. That 
our minds could even capture. But here, it's talking about spiritually. And then he became poor. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus did become poor physically. But, I think this is referring rather to the incarnation. That is when Jesus came to earth. I'm not saying that Jesus Christ was rich. The Bible does say that he had no place to lay his head. But let me give you a couple reasons of why I think this is most likely referring to spiritual poverty and not physical poverty. Number one, we have no indication in Scripture that Jesus was actually impoverished. That is, it's not like he was going around begging and they did at times have money. Furthermore, it would seem inconsistent to define poor as physically impoverished and then define riches in the next phrase as spiritual. Instead, it seems best to see Christ's poverty as the lowliness of human existence and the Son's willingness to come to earth and suffer and die on the cross with Christ's two natures. I think this is possible in both sides. But I think this poverty is referring to his incarnation, that his He came to earth and he emptied himself as Philippians 2 says. And then we come to the last phrase, rich. Now this is important in usage because there are times in scripture when rich means physically rich. And there are times in scripture where poor means physically poor. And that's why we have to make sure that when we do usage, we're using it in the proper way. Become rich. 9 verse, 8 verse 9. Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. God makes us rich spiritually so that we can give to others physically. Giving financially is directly related to the grace of God within us. So when it says that for our sakes he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, I don't think that's saying so that we could become millionaires. I think that's talking about the spiritual riches that Jesus Christ gives to his children. 2 Corinthians 5.21, just a page or two back. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, because he did that, that in him we might become rich. Or the wording here, the righteousness of God. So here's our conclusion. Use the context. Use the original languages if possible. And use the author's usage to help you discover the different usages of the same word in Scripture. Let's close in prayer.